Well, it's interesting, actually, that uh, that that this week has been a week of uh, of hearing about the teachers union. I remember growing up, I don't know, I don't know how many of you heard this on the on the uh, radio or on the television, but did any of you ever hear the commercial that said, uh, you know, America works best when we say union? Yes. How many of you have heard that? Okay, only a few of you. Wow, I feel really embarrassed now. I won't sing it again. Um, anyway, I grew up. I grew up in a very pro-union area of the world, and uh, 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 Santa Rosa, north of the Bay Area, uh, a, a large percentage of the workforce was unionized. And everywhere I went on the radio, on television, I heard this phrase, this this dilly on the radio: "America works best when we say union." Yes, I sang it again. And I, I never knew what it meant. But anyway, uh, in time, I, I came to learn what a union was and what a non-union worker was and the benefits and the pros and cons of all of it. And this morning, uh, you know, we're, we're in the thick of, uh, of, of a union issue. We have the Teachers Union, the Capistrano Unified uh, Teachers, uh, or excuse me, the California Teachers Association uh, in a battle with a, a local school district. And uh, we're having... We're having conflict and we're having problems in this union and in between all, all parties. And it's not been fun for the last week. I think everyone would agree with that. We've seen picketers and we've seen people holding signs and, and proclaiming, you know, what, what, what their side uh, should be receiving or, or what they should be receiving in, in compensation or some sort of a fair and equitable agreement. And so we see these, these signs going up and these unions uh, holding strong and district officials holding strong. And it's, it's just not a, it, you look at it and you think this is just not a, not a pleasant environment. Well, in Romans 7, Paul's actually going to talk about a union. But he's not going to talk about a union like the union and, and the fighting that we're seeing right here between officials and, and, and union officials. Instead, Paul is going to talk about a union that works beautifully. Paul's going to talk about a union that always achieves its end goals. He's going to talk about an eternal union that you and I have with Jesus Christ that solves all of your problems. The title of my message today is The Christian Life Works Best in Union with Christ. The Christian life works best in union with Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. And we'll begin to look at the first few verses in Romans. I don't want to read through it all right now. It's going to be a longer portion, so we're going to read through it in sections this morning. But take a look at Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to go to verse 4 and take this all the way to about verse 13 in our study this morning. Paul writes this about unions, if you will. He says, verse 1 of chapter 7, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. 
so that she is no uh, so that she is no adulteress, though she may though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead, dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married in union with another to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Paul here is discussing a couple of different unions, if you will. He's talking about in verse one our union to the law of God, and he's going to comment on. We're going to comment on that in just a moment, and then he's also going to talk about our union or our marriage with Christ. And he really he starts off the discussion in chapter seven by giving an illustration, much like the start of a sermon. You know, Paul. Uh, opens up his his next discussion here with with an illustration, a practical, real-life illustration that we can all get our hands around. And he mentions here in chapter 7, verse 2, a little lesson, if you will, in the Old Testament Jewish law. He says, here's a woman who has married a, a husband, and as she's entered into union with her husband, she is now obligated, according to the Old Testament law, to abide exclusively with Him until death. Hence, we have the vows today, till death do us part. Okay, This is an ideal that has been passed down through the generations in marriage ceremonies of all, of all, of all cultures. But Paul says, suppose the husband dies. What obligation then does the woman have if her husband has died? What obligation does she have to abide in that union. Paul makes mention that the Old Testament law was clear that if the husband died, the woman's obligation to him would also cease. The woman would be free to go out and to find another husband, and she could do so without a guilty conscience. In fact, in the first century, it was, it was absolutely necessary that she do so because in that culture, women very rarely worked outside of, the, of, of their duties at home. And so if she didn't have a husband, her entire life would be in jeopardy. And so it's interesting, actually, that the Old Testament law, the Scriptures, were some of the first, uh, were one of the first law codes in ancient history to make this concession for women. It showed a lot of grace and a lot of mercy in, in that day and age upon those who were considered lower in society. It shows us about the, the quality and the integrity of the Word of God. But Paul, Paul's talking about this illustration here and he says, look, the law, the law is clear. If the husband dies, the woman's obligation to him ceases as well. The woman's free to go out, she's free to remarry, and she can do so without a guilty conscience. The, the one who leaves their husband while he's still alive, well, she would be called an adulteress. But the law declared that this woman in this illustration could have confidence that she was released from her obligation. And were she to marry another man, she would not be labeled an adulteress. In fact, her new marriage would be perfectly acceptable in the sight of God. It would be a good thing for her to remarry and start a new union. Now, why is Paul bringing this up? Why this illustration? Is he simply giving us a lesson in Old Testament marriage law? No, not at all. In fact, that's totally the furthest from Paul's mind. Paul is using this illustration to teach us 
about our new obligation. He's using this illustration to teach you and me about our new covenant that is ours through Jesus Christ. Christians, we are like the woman that Paul is speaking about. The comparisons between us and the woman, they aren't perfect, and Paul's going to readily admit that here, but they are present. Now notice this, just as the woman entered into a marital bond and obligation with her first husband, so also we, when we are born into this world, we are obligated to something. Namely, the law of God. Prior to coming to Jesus Christ, the law was our master. And with this master came both blessings and consequences. The blessing is that the law taught us the the statutes of God. You know, the the law is holy and just and good, Paul says later on, a little bit later on. He says, look, the law shows us the righteous standard of God. And so to have the law as your master is, in one sense, very much a blessing. But the law is also very much, uh, brings with it consequences. Because Paul says earlier in Romans, we remember back in chapter 2, he said, look, by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, when the law is your master, when you have the law in front of your face, all you can see is the righteous standard of God, and all you can do is look back at yourself and think, I don't measure up to the law. And so the Bible says that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Prior to coming to Christ, the law is our master. And it is a blessing in that we come to know the truth of God and the statutes of God, but it also has consequences with it in that we realize how far we fall short. The law is like our first union, our first marriage partner. We were born obligated to it. And while there are some inherent blessings, it also brings with it consequences. But that's not the end of the story. We have a new union now, Paul says. And remember, like the woman in the story, she was initially married to one husband, but he died and she became free to marry another. Notice carefully verse 4. Zero in on verse 4 for a moment. It says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to Him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Christian, like the woman's first marriage, your former union with the law is over. It's over. In the woman's case, her husband died. In the woman's case, her husband died and it removed the obligation from her to that bond, to that union. In our case, it is actually we who have died. We have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, we have died with Christ. And this death has ushered us in to a new and perfect spiritual union with Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul said earlier in our studies in Romans 6. He said this. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him. Buried with Him through baptism into death. Our old man, he says, was crucified with Him. What does it mean that we died with Christ? What does that even mean? 
Well, among other things, it means that we have become fully identified with Him. His triumph, Jesus' triumph, has become our triumph. Jesus' victory has become our victory. And what is the victory that Jesus won? Colossians chapter 2. Notice what it says. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. What is that? The law. Having wiped out the law that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What is the victory Jesus has won? He has fulfilled the law. He has completed the obligation that you and I have to the law of God. In the story of the woman whose husband had passed, death, his death, had removed her obligation to her former union. So also Jesus, by His death and resurrection, has removed our obligation to our former Master, the law. Jesus' sacrifice has made it possible for us to free ourselves from our former Master. He died to fulfill the law. That is, to complete our obligation to it. And when we believe in Him, the condemnation of our former Master dies with it. And we are given new life, God's life, Spirit life, eternal life. Death has removed the obligation to the former union. And like the woman whose conscience was now clean, it was now pure to go out and to marry another so also our consciences become clean as we enter into covenant with Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus frees us. Jesus forgives us. He makes us new. It is a union unlike any other. And as we abide in our new union with Jesus Christ, Paul says, we bear fruit to God, according to verse 4. Now there are stark contrasts between these two unions. Notice verse 5. Notice the contrast between these two unions. Verse 5 says this, For when we were in the flesh, that is, prior to Christ, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Remember now, friends, that Paul has repeatedly said in Romans that by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, by the law. When we look at the law, what we see is sin. Our sin. We see the holy law of God and we think to ourselves, I don't measure up to this. I can't reach this. I can't attain this. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Here, in verse 5, Paul takes it one step further. He adds this. He says, look, sinful passions were actually aroused by the law. 
and led us to bear fruit to death. In other words, our enemy, our enemy, Satan, he uses the law to actually provoke us to sin. You think, well, how can that be? I think of an illustration uh, that any parent can probably uh, uh, resonate with. And that is, have you ever looked at your child and said, son, daughter, whatever you do, don't touch that. How many of you have ever done that? Right? Raise your hands. Come on. Now. There's something in the house that you pointed to and you said, whatever you do, you can do anything you want. But whatever you do, don't touch that. And what does the child want to do? Touch it, of course, right? Right? There have been many things in my home, you know, we were trying to tell Bennett, Bennett, whatever you do, you know, don't touch this. Or Mallory, lately Mallory has just been making a beeline for the electric sockets. And it seems that every day Casey and I are plugging in another one of those plastic things that cover your electric socket because our daughter is just naturally inclined to run over and put her finger in an electric socket. It's just crazy. And, And why is she inclined to do that? I'll tell you why. Because early on in her life, I said, Mallory, don't touch that. And so all she does is go straight for it every time. Sin, taking advantage of the law, aroused in us a desire to do evil. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 5. Sinful passions are actually incited in us. They're provoked in us. They're built up in us whenever we hear the words, don't do that. I think we can understand that. Even as adults, you know, we think to ourselves, we, we know the list of you know, do's and don'ts maybe in the Christian life a little bit, and we think, oh man, I know it says don't do this, but man, that looks awfully fun. Doesn't it, it, it kind of, revives a little bit of our, of our fleshly tendencies to go out and to want to explore whatever that prohibition is. Sin is abusing the law to arouse these passions in us. Our enemy is abusing the law of God to provoke us to sin. And Paul says, look, in the flesh, when we were in the flesh, that is prior to coming to Christ, this was our experience in full. The whatever you do, don't do this list of commands actually stirred up our sinful tendencies. And Paul's going to say at the end of this chapter, we're going to read about this next week, that even he still struggles in this very manner. To this day, he occasionally will forget who his true union is with. And when we take our eyes off of Jesus, this becomes our experience as well. But notice verse 6. There's a startling contrast in unions here. But now we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We have a new union. You've become a new person in Jesus Christ. As we've learned in Romans 6, Paul is begging us. He's pleading with us to become the person that we already are. He says, act in accordance with your new union. You've been made righteous in Christ. And it makes no sense to regress and to fall back into, your, into obligation to your former master. 
Now, by now, Paul has said, uh, by now, Paul has said a, a lot of maybe harsh language about the Old Testament law. He's he's been kind of hard on it, right? He's he's been saying, look, we're no longer under law. We're in Christ. And and there might have been some in the Roman church, as we're we're reading the the letter to the Romans, there might have been some in the Roman church who Paul suspected would, would misread him. There might have been some in the church who Paul suspected would would hear the words that he's just said and the argument that he's just made up until this point, and they might be thinking, wait a minute, is Paul suggesting that the law is evil? Is Paul suggesting that the law is actually sinful itself? Verse 7 and following addresses some of this. Take a look at verse 7 as Paul makes very clear what he's saying. Look at verse 7 to 9. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desires. From apart, for apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul makes it very clear, friends, and let's let's have no ambiguity about it. Paul is not suggesting that the law of God is sinful. Paul is not suggesting that the law is evil. What he is suggesting is that the enemy of God takes advantage of the law of God to provoke in us evil passions and desires, and action. It is not the law that is sinful. It is the enemy who arouses sin and abuses the law. Now, in in your outline here, we're not going to go through this in detail, but I did want to point something out to you. Take a look at your outline. Um, I've listed there what's called the Paul's thought process in verses 7 to 13. And this is a little complicated, and I don't have the ability to put it up on the screen. It's just too much text. So you'll have to just take this home and, and, and take a look at it a little bit more in detail. But uh, what you're seeing here is how Paul is thinking in these last few verses. From verses 7 to 13, you see what you find often throughout the Scriptures, which is called chiastic structure. It's when the author, whether it's Paul or, or even Jesus or some of the Old Testament authors, it's when they write... Uh, It's when they write or teach or speak in such a way that they're driving at something and that they're comparing it all the way through as they're they're going through their thought process. And if you were to make a very careful comparison of verses 7 to 13, you would find it all aligning together, driving toward this idea that, hey, he was alive without the law, but with the law in his life, all of these things took place. And so be, be mindful of the flow of thought and how... My, my point in giving you this is this. It's a little technical, but realize there is so much... The Spirit of God has ordered this as Paul writes it. The Lord is very intentional in what He is saying to you and to me. And He wants us to get it. And so He's literally he's repeating it again and again and again. And He doesn't want us to miss this point so as we're going through verses 7 to 13, when you, hear, when you hear some of the repetition, realize it's done for a very real and legitimate purpose. So again, verse 7 asks the question, Is the law sin? Certainly not. 
On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, Paul says. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. In other words, Paul's saying, look, the law is good. It instructs us in what God expects. But unfortunately, Satan takes advantage of the law of God. And once we learn of it, our enemy calls it into question and calls the good law of God calls into question the very thing it espouses. He says in verse 8, Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. You know, just as I I spoke of my son and my daughter, you know, when I tell them don't touch that, the first thing they want to do is run up and touch it. So also, when we know the law of God, it often arises in us sinful tendencies to go against it. And, and, and Paul is, is showing that here again in repetition in verse 8. But notice the last part. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, what does he mean by that? Apart from the law, sin was dead. Does he mean that, that sin didn't exist apart from the law? No. If that were the case, then, uh, then we, it couldn't be said that, that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden because that was prior to the Mosaic law. No, he's not suggesting here that apart from the law, sin doesn't exist. Paul's suggesting apart from the law, when you don't have the law before your face, sin is diminished in its ability to influence you. It's dead. It's ineffectual. It's powerless. When you know the law of God, all of a sudden this it arises within you. The enemy takes advantage of your knowledge of the law and arises within you this provocation to go out and to disobey it. But Paul's making the point here that apart from the law, the, the desire for sin is, is very much ineffectual. It's very much it's, it's pushed down, if you will. For apart from the law, sin was dead, less effectual. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, I was alive once without the law. Now, what does he mean by that? Paul here is driving at his moment of justification, if you will. Paul, by faith in Jesus Christ, became a new person, just like you and I become a new person by faith in Christ. And Paul, when he believed in Jesus Christ, he, in effect, died with Christ, was raised with Christ, he participated in the triumph and the victory with Christ, And he died to the law. He died to its power. He died to its consequences. He says, I was alive once without the law. Ah, but like every Christian, like every believer who comes to faith in Christ and has a vibrant first few weeks and first few months and maybe first few years and that first moment of salvation and the days that follow are fresh and alive and vibrant. And you, and you feel like, I'm on this spiritual high with the Lord. I've never felt this way before. I'm forgiven. I'm one with Christ. The Spirit is leading me. That, that, that freshness that comes when we are justified. Just like for Paul, so also for us, that freshness at times wanes. It fades. And our eyes dip off the cross. And we take our head away from the person of Christ. And the commandment comes back in. 
And the do's and don'ts come back in. And the law comes back in. And we begin to lose this idea of being free in Christ. And we begin to regress and go back to this idea of Christianity is just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Paul says, I was alive once without the law at my moment of salvation. But then the commandment came back at times. And he's going to describe this in detail in the latter part of this chapter. We'll study it next week. And when the law comes back into my life and I regress and I go back to this idea of legalism and do's and don'ts, guess what happens? Sin revives and I die. Paul's not talking about eternal death here. He's not talking about going to hell. He's talking about having an experience of death in himself when he goes back to the Old Testament law. Christians, when you view your Christian life through the perspective of law, when you look at your Christian life and think, all this life is, all this religion is, all my faith is, is a list of do's and don'ts. Sin revives. And you die. You don't go to hell. You experience demise. You experience downfall. You experience drought. When you are a legalistic person, when you are a judgmental person, when you are a law-driven person, sin revives. And you die. Being the imperfect man that he was, even Paul experienced this at times. Paul admits that there were moments when the commandment, when his former master returned to center stage. And when Paul finds himself obeying laws, instead of walking in the Spirit, he finds that sin revives in himself. And he experiences death. He continues this thought in verse 10 to the end of our study this morning. Notice verse 10. And the commandment, the law, my former master, the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, it deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. There's a mouthful there at the end. We're going to unpack it here briefly. He says, look, though perfect obedience to the law could in theory give a person life. In fact, Jesus said that Himself and Paul said that. The Old Testament mentioned that. Perfect obedience to the law could, in theory, give a person life, Paul admits in verse 10. But the only thing the law really does is bring people to an experience of wantonness and death. And Paul clarifies in verse 12, look, I'm not saying the law is evil. No, the law is holy 
It is just. It is good. But what I am saying is, the enemy of God uses the law of God to his advantage to deceive us and to kill us. The word deception there, or deceive, is the same word Paul uses to describe the deception of of Adam and Eve. The enemy takes advantage of the law of God to deceive us. It happened at the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve. Paul admits it happens to him at times. And you and I can probably resonate and nod our heads and say, yeah, at times, that's how I feel too. But Paul concludes in verse 13 that it is sin, sin, and not the law that is the villain in all of this. The law has simply made known the great influential power of sin. Or as Paul puts it, sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, sin, because of its abuse of the commandment of God, has shown itself to be utterly wicked, utterly sinful, utterly evil. Sin is the villain. Our enemy Satan is the villain, which has taken advantage of the law of God and brought us to a state of death. Now, I will readily admit that uh, this morning's study, and maybe I should have prefaced it, uh, this morning's study is, uh, is really a, a study in a lot of theory, isn't it? It's a study in doctrine. It's a study in kind of theory. And, and, and you might be thinking to yourself, how can, I, how can I wrap my arms around this? What's the point of this? How do I walk out of here this morning and have something that's tangible that I can take with me? I want to consider these closing thoughts. I tried to unpack this as much as I could and make this as practical as I could in these closing thoughts. So take a look and maybe fill in your outline if you'd like. Christian, Christian, I want to say this. Your life is not a list of do's and don'ts. Your life is not law-driven. It is spirit-driven. And we have entered, Christians, we have entered into a new and rich and vibrant union with Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Secondly, like an enriching marriage union, Jesus has perfectly complemented us with all that we need to live an abundant life with Him. What does that mean? Well, for one thing, it means this. While the Old Testament law of God still reflects God's standards... His standards of morality, if you will. The Spirit has now embedded those standards upon our heart. The Spirit of God has now put the law of God upon our heart so that we no longer look at it as a legal document. Look at this next part here. Therefore, we are to be righteous not because of laws laid down in a legal document in the Torah, No, we are to be righteous because our new union in Christ inherently reminds us that exhibiting God's righteousness is the only way to an abundant life. Paul is saying, Christian, once again, become who you already are. I've said this many times, but this is Paul's recurring theme in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. Christian, become who you already are. You are not to follow do's and don'ts. You are not to look at the Christian life as a legal document that you check off. 
We are to approach the Christian life walking in the Spirit, abiding in the Spirit, living with the Spirit, asking the Spirit to guide us and to revive in us righteousness. And any time we have an attitude of legalism, any time we have an attitude of judgmentalism, any time we look at others and, and, and our hearts grow cold and, and wicked and cruel, we're regressing to our former Master. And we're losing sight of the law, the righteousness of God that has been embedded in our heart. And the Spirit of God who is in us who enables us to live righteously. Remember who you are. Because you have believed in Jesus, you are righteous because of Jesus Christ. Now live like it. Live like it, Paul says. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize that we have a new union And Lord, while so often in this life, unions fall apart, whether it's marriage unions, or whether it's teachers' unions, or whatever union it might be on earth, we know that we have a union with You that is eternal, and that is enduring, and that is alive, and that is with us even now who have believed in Jesus Christ. Lord, take away our desire for our former Master. Take away the desire to look at our Christian life through the perspective of do's and don'ts. That is not us, Lord. We seek righteousness because we know it is good. We seek righteousness because we know it is the way, the only way to abundant living. We seek righteousness, God, because You have looked upon us, and because of Your Son, You have called us righteous. Help us, God, to be who we are. Help us to be more like Jesus, to rely on Your Spirit, to wake up each day and to know the power that is in us to live holy and just and good lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.